The sorrows of death surrounded me, the sorrow of hell encompassed me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Except to a Jesus Sunday, we're in violet vestments, there's no Gloria, and we're not gonna hear Alleluia again until Easter. So what's that all about? The great Benedictine literatist Dom Guerinje explains, as usual, the cuts have been, or the quotes have been cut and pasted and edited. Dom Guerinje. St. Augustine gives us the clue to this season's mysteries. St. Augustine, quote, there are two times, one which is now and is spent in the temptations and tribulations of this life, the other which shall be then and shall be spent in eternal security and joy. We celebrate two liturgical periods which symbolize this, the time before Easter and the time after Easter. The time before Easter symbolizes the sorrow of this present life. The time after Easter symbolizes the blessedness of our future state. Hence it is that we spend the first period in fasting and prayer, and the second period we give up our fasting and give ourselves to praise. Close quote, St. Augustine. Dom Garanjay continues, the church often speaks to us of two places which correspond with these two times of St. Augustine. These two places are Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon is the image of this world of sin in the midst whereof the Christian has to spend his years of probation. Jerusalem is the heavenly country where he is to repose after all his trials. The people of Israel, whose whole history symbolizes the history of the human race, was banished from Jerusalem and kept in bondage in Babylon. Now this Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years, and all the great liturgists tell us that it is to express this mystery that the church, using round numbers, fixed the number of 70 for the days of expiation. After those 70 days, the Septuagesima of mourning, we shall have the bright Easter with its seven weeks of gladness, foreshadowing the happiness and bliss of heaven. After having fasted with our Jesus and suffered with him, the day will come when we shall rise together with him and our hearts shall follow him to the highest heavens. And then after a brief interval, we shall feel the Holy Ghost descending upon us with his seven gifts. The seven joyous weeks from Easter to Pentecost prefigure a still gladder future, the future of eternity. We are exiles and captives in Babylon, that city which plots our ruin. If we love our heavenly country, we must withstand the flying allurements of Babylon, this world of sin which invites us to join in her feasts and her songs. No, there must be no sign that we are content to be in bondage or we shall deserve to be slaves forever. These are the sentiments wherewith the church would inspire us during the penitential season which we are now beginning. She wishes us to reflect on the dangers that beset us, dangers which rise from ourselves and from creatures. During the rest of the year, she loves to hear us chant the song of heaven, the sweet hallelujah. But now she bids us to close our lips to this world of joy because we are in Babylon. We are pilgrims absent from the Lord. Let us keep our glad hymn for the day of his return. We are sinners and have but too often held fellowship with the world of God's enemies. Let us become purified by repentance. The leading feature then of Septuagesima is a total suspension of the Alleluia, which is not again to be heard upon the earth until arrival of that happy day 
when having suffered death with our Jesus and having been buried together with him, we shall rise again with him to a new life. So during this time, after the gradual Mass, instead of hearing the thrice repeated Alleluia, which prepared our hearts to listen to the voice of God and the Holy Gospel, we shall hear but a mournful and protracted chant called on that account, The Tract. The sweet hymn of the angels, Glory and Excelsis Dale, which we have sung every Sunday since the birth of our Savior in Bethlehem, is also taken from us. It's only on the Feast of the Saints, which may be kept during the week, that we shall be allowed to repeat it. That the eye, too, may teach us that the season we are entering on is one of mourning. The Church will vest her ministers both on Sundays and on the days during the week which are not Feasts of Saints in the Psalm of Purple. Thus, Don Guerranger. So the liturgical symbolism from now until Easter is of the Babylonian captivity. Babylon symbolizes the world of sin in the midst of which we find ourselves struggling till we're released from our bondage and allowed to enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, which is symbolized in liturgy as the period of time between Easter and Pentecost. Liturgically speaking, in the time leading up to Easter, we find ourselves then exiled and captive in Babylon, this worldly city which plots our ruin. And the liturgy symbolically reflects our rejection of the temptations and allurements of this sinful city by suppressing those beautiful songs of heavenly joy, the Gloria and the Hallelujah, and also by clothing the ministers in the violet vestments, which are visible signs of penance. Now with all that as background, today we'll spend some time talking about one of the principal ways that Babylon, this world of sin, attacks us. So today we'll spend some time considering that, and then over the next few weeks leading up into Lent, we'll talk about ways to combat those attacks. Now in order to put everything into context, we'll start by very briefly answering the question, what is man? What is man? We'll quickly consider three points. We could spend hours on any one of these points, but we'll just touch briefly on the first two and spend a little more time developing the third. First point, man is a creature. The fact that man is a creature necessarily implies some other truths. For example, since man is a creature, that means he's not God. And since he's not God, that means he doesn't get to decide what is good or what is evil, what is right or what is wrong. Unfortunately, many of our neighbors and virtually all of our rulers do not seem to have any concrete grasp of this reality. Second point, man is a creature made in the image and likeness of God. This likeness to God is in the soul because the soul of a man is a spirit, is therefore immortal, and it's made for union with God. Third point, man is damaged. Man damaged himself by rebelling against God. We'll spend some time on this point in order to more fully grasp some of the implications we'll rely on St. Thomas and that great Thomist, Father Gregory Lagrange. We'll start by taking a brief look at the state of a man before Adam fell, the state of original justice, but because of time, we're only gonna be able to hit some of the high points. The state of original justice. The state of original justice is also known as the good old days. The state of original justice was the state in which Adam, and then later Eve, was created. Why is it called the state of original justice? Well, it's called original because it starts 
at the origin of man, and it just doesn't get any more original than that. Why is it called justice? Justice means rendering unto another what is his due. In the beginning, everything was justly ordered. Nature was unfallen and orderly. Animals obeyed man. Man's lower powers were subject to his higher powers. Man himself was perfectly subjected to God. So in regards to man, everything in the beginning was ordered perfectly. The great Thomistic theologian, Father Gergou Lagrange, gives us an easy way to remember what the state of original justice was. Think of a triple harmony. So you have this triple harmony. There's a perfect harmony between God and the soul, since it was created to obtain eternal life by knowing and loving and serving God. There's a perfect harmony between the soul and the body, which was made to serve the soul. The passions were totally under the control of right reason, enlightened by the faith, and under the direction of the will, strengthened by charity. So the body was not subject to injury, sickness, or death. And there was a perfect harmony between the body of man and the rest of nature. The animals were docile and obedient to man who had dominion over them, and the earth brought forth crops without any hard labor. So there's this triple harmony in the state of original justice. It's easy to picture if you make uh, two little squares in your mind. You put God over Adam, so you have God over Adam, the soul over the passions, and body and the rest of nature. So it's God over Adam, the soul over the passions, the body over the rest of nature. So there's a harmony between God and the soul. God over Adam, there's a harmony between the soul and the body, and then you have the harmony between the body and the rest of nature, okay? What held it all together? Sanctifying grace and the gift of integrity. Sanctifying grace and the gift of integrity held this harmony together. But then became, then came disaster, the original sin. Adam sinned and that ended the state of original justice. So man now found himself in a state of fallen nature, the second of the three possible states of man in this life. The three possible states in this man, uh, man in this life are the state of original justice, the state of fallen nature, and the state of restored nature. Original justice, fallen nature, and restored nature. We're not going to look at the state of restored nature today. So original sin destroyed the state of original justice, and man landed in the state of fallen nature. Now human nature is left to its natural powers. Now it lacks grace and the gifts. But by our own natural powers, heaven is totally out of reach. And to add to the disaster, once Adam committed the original sin, heaven was just plain slammed shut for all men. So anyhow, if that isn't bad enough, since the state of fallen nature is a sinful condition, now it's more difficult for man to do good and avoid evil than if he'd never been in the state of grace. So we can say to Adam, thanks a lot. So there's this triple harmony before Adam fell, but original sin destroyed that harmony. But original sin destroyed original justice, and it causes the opposite situation, the state of disharmony. So God let the punishment fit the crime. Remember those squares, God over Adam, the soul over the passions and the body over the rest of nature. So what happened? God told Adam to obey. But Adam said, no. He rebelled. When he rebelled, he threw away sanctifying grace and the gifts, including the gift of integrity, the very things that held this harmony together. So just as the subject Adam rebelled over his ruler God, so now the subject passions rule against the ruler right reason. So also nature rules 
uh, against the body, revolts against the body. So now we have the man against God, the passions against right reason, and nature against the body. That's the state of fallen nature. We'll take a little closer look. It's really important for everyone to understand this. The rebellion of Adam against God resulted in the state of fallen nature. And that gave man both supernatural and natural problems. We'll start with the supernatural problems. By turning away from God, man's fallen from grace. Now he's totally unable to obtain supernatural <coughs> happiness. Why? Because supernatural life only comes from God. And so man's toast. He's supernaturally dead and he can't raise himself from the dead. And remember, without supernatural life, no one can live the life of heaven. Completely impossible. And if that's not bad enough, and it's still not at all, by rejecting the supernatural freedom of a son under the merciful and loving rule of God, Adam chose for us instead to be a slave under the miserable, cruel rule of Satan. So Adam's fall resulted in the loss of grace, and the loss of the gifts of integrity, impassibility, immortality, and in mankind's bondage to Satan. This is why we have exorcisms before a baptism. Those aren't just randomly there. That's to break that bondage to Satan that is very real, and it's part of our human condition. Thanks a lot, Adam. And that's still not all. Adam also threw away the gifts of integrity, impassibility, and mortality. What does that mean? Well, the loss of the gifts of impassibility and mortality means that man is now subject to hard work, to sickness, to suffering, and to death. And the loose loss of the gift of integrity left man's powers in their natural condition. And you don't need me to tell you that the natural condition of man's powers is disharmony. Theologians call the resulting condition the wounds of nature. After Adam chucked the gift of integrity, man had problems with his intellect, his will, and his passions. So Adam gets rid of the gift of integrity by the original sin, and we get resulting problems with our intellect, will, and passions. We'll take a quick look at the damage. In the state of fallen nature, man has problems in his intellect and will. In his intellect, it's the wound of ignorance. <coughs> the intellect's been darkened. From now on, man would have great difficulty in learning and understanding truth. That's the wound of ignorance. In his will, the wound of malice. His will's been weakened. From now on, man will suffer from weakness in the face of evil. So that's the wound in the will, the wound of malice. And his passions, he has two wounds. He's got the wound of weakness, which means it's now hard for him to actually struggle for the good. But the wound, the wound that really messes him up is called the wound of concupiscence. Concupiscence. We'll take a minute to look at this wound. Now concupiscence is one of those $4 theological words it just means the rebellion of our sense appetites, uh, like passions and emotions against right reason. That's what concupiscence means. It's the rebellion of our passion, passions and sense appetites against the rule of right reason. Guess what? If our sense appetites, like hunger or thirst, for example, or passions like anger, are rebellion against right reason, that means that instead of being led by reason, we can easily be led by our passions and our appetites. And without the gift of integrity, guess which way they're going to lead us? 
That's the whole problem with concupiscence. It inclines us towards sin. We're rational creatures. We have an intellect and a will. That means in our actions, we've actually been created to be led by the light of reason, illuminated by the true faith, and governed by the gift of integrity. But when we're led by our passions or emotions, instead of right reason, then we're being unreasonable. In fact, to the very degree we're being led by our passions, to that very degree we're no longer acting like men. In fact, to that very degree we're acting like beasts. But there's one major difference. Beasts can't act below their nature, but we can. Not only that, with the wound of concupiscence, men in a state of fallen nature now have a strong desire for sensual pleasure against right reason. What does that mean? In a state of original justice, man would have not sought pleasure at the expense of another man. But in a state of fallen nature, men now naturally want to please themselves, even at the expense of others, even against the rule of reason. It means that men are now naturally selfish. Now we can see why St. Thomas teaches that before the fall, Adam only need grace for eternal life. But we need grace for eternal life, and we need grace to remit our sins, and we need grace to support our weaknesses. So in the state of fallen nature, we're actually pretty much a mess. Quick review. Man's a creature made in the image and likeness of God, a body and immortal soul, a spiritual soul, which meant for union with God. He was created in a state of original justice. He was showered with heavenly gifts. When the first man, our father Adam, committed the original sin, he threw away the state of original justice. He threw away supernatural grace. He threw away the gifts of integrity, impassibility, immortality. He threw away friendship with God and chose bondage to Satan. Man landed in a state of fallen nature in which doing good is difficult, the intellect is darkened, the will is weak, doing good is difficult, man suffers from his passions, rising up in rebellion against right reason, a rebellion known as concupiscence. Man is now subject to hard work, suffering, sickness, and death. That is reality. Before the fall, because of the gift of integrity, human nature was perfectly ordered, so man loved God above all things and certainly more than himself. After the fall, sanctifying grace and the gift of integrity were lost, and human nature was disordered. His passions are disordered, and his intellect has been darkened. His will is weakened, he has trouble struggling to do the good. He now naturally tends towards selfishness to seek his own personal desires without thinking about the common good and without thinking about God. And this can't be fixed without grace. It can't be fixed without grace. Man now naturally tends towards selfishness to seek his own personal desires without thinking the common good, without thinking about God. And this cannot be fixed without grace. This is important. You want to burn that into your mind. This is reality. Man now naturally tends towards selfishness to seek his own personal desires without thinking of the common good and without thinking about God. And that cannot be fixed without grace. If the only thing we accomplish in this sermon is to get you to really, really see that, we've really accomplished something. Because of original sin, we're all damaged goods. We're not speaking of Our Lady, of course. We all naturally tend towards selfishness. We naturally tend to seek our personal desires without thinking about the common good, about God. We're a mess and it can't be fixed without grace. 
Then start penciling actual sin into the equation. We've really got problems. That's reality. Okay. Now that we know what man is, let's make sure we know what he's for. What's the purpose of life? What are we doing here? What's the purpose of life? What's life for? We're here to know, to love, and to serve God in this life, and to be happy with Him forever in the next. That's the purpose of life. That's what life's for. Once we realize that, we realize that in the light of eternity, the only meaningful progress is to progress in our knowledge, (coughs) our love, and our service of God. That's the only meaningful progress. Okay. One more review. Thanks to original sin, our passions and emotions are rebellion against right reason, a condition called concupiscence. Concupiscence inclines us towards sin. The purpose of life is to know and love, serve God in this life, and be happy with Him forever in the next. We're here to get to heaven, and nothing else really matters. We're here to get to heaven, but we have this huge problem, and it's a serious problem. Don't kid yourself. We're afflicted with concupiscence. Reflected with this terrible inclination towards sin. So we're here to get to heaven, yet we have a terrible inclination towards sin. In other words, a terrible inclination towards hell. Okay? So each one of us, not Our Lady, but we can say, I want to get to heaven, but I have this terrible thing inside me, these terrible drives, these urges, they can easily drag me right down into hell. So I'm meant for heaven, but my concupiscence will drag me straight to hell if I let it. But that's not even the half of it. So let's briefly consider this Babylonian culture we live in just by doing a little thought experiment. You can do it in real life. I've done this lots of times. You go into a big grocery store and stand there in the cereal aisle for a while and wait until a mother comes through with her little kids. You're not going to have to wait very long till some little kid pitches a fit and demands his mom grabs him a a box of sugar-coated frosted bombs or some crazy thing like that. We've all seen that scenario. I've seen a lot of times that little square, God over Adam. Adam said no, mom over Junior. There's Junior rebelling. Punishment fits the crime. Now in this little scenario, there's a lot of interesting angles to analyze. But today let's just ask ourselves, what just happened there? Was this child making a reasonable request, a request which was based on the knowledge of his proper daily dietary requirements? Of course not. He saw something that tasted good, and as soon as he saw it, which is the same as saying as soon as he sensed it, there was a movement of his passions, a movement which is, which is termed as concupiscible appetites, that just means essential appetites, all those desires for, in his soul for pleasurable good at those sugar-coated frosted bombs. Was this a reasonable request? No. He wasn't the slightest bit concerned whether this box of cereal was, was nutritious. In other words, he wasn't the slightest bit concerned whether this was actually good cereal. He was interested in the cereal because it tastes good. In other words, his interest in the cereal is based purely and totally on his passions and not on his reason. It's a request rooted firmly in concupiscence. Now let's think about the advertising for sugar-coated chocolate bombs. Before we think about the advertising as it is, Let's think about the advertising as it is not. Does anyone think here that the advertisers for this cereal are going to point out that about 20 minutes after eating this, 
Junior is going to have a sugar high and start ricocheting off the walls and creating havoc in your house. Of course not. Does anyone point, think that the advertisers are going to point out that if Junior eats these sugar-coated frosted bombs every day while he's growing up, he'll end up probably a fat little kid with rotten teeth and a strong disposition towards diabetes? Of course not. So what are we saying? We're saying that the basis for this advertising is not going to be at the level of an appeal to right reason. What sort of ads does this product probably have? We've all seen ads for pre-sweetened breakfast cereals. Typically, there's some kind of cartoon character, bouncy-type scenes with all this upbeat music. Why? What's the message there? Something along the lines of, these sugar-coated frosted bombs are fun, they taste good, and won't you have gobs of fun if you eat them too, huh? That advertising isn't accidental. They're not just randomly putting those advertisements out there. What exactly are they appealing to in that advertisement? Is it right reason? That this is a really good cereal for the child, it's healthy, nutritious, won't rot the teeth? Of course not. Their advertising are appealing to the child's appetites. This kind of advertising is pitched at the level of the passions. And it works. It really works. Now I deliberately chose that example because many of the very people this sort of serial advertisement is aimed at are children. Children that haven't even reached the age of reason yet. Yet companies are deliberately aiming advertisement towards them. And when you get a little time, it's worth seriously pondering the moral implications of that. That thought experiment about the fact that advertisement definitely can and definitely does appeal to children who have not yet reached the rage of reason ought to really help bring our actual situation into clear focus. Remember that before the fall, all of Adam's senses and imagination were totally under the rule of reason, which means that modern advertisement would have absolutely no effect on moving his desires. Because his senses and bodily faculties are all perfectly under the control of reason, sins of the flesh, like gluttony or immodesty, would have absolutely no attraction for him. But because of the fall, we have this serious problem with our sense appetites, which are in rebellion against right reason. We have this serious problem with concupiscence, which inclines us towards sin. And among other things, the advertisers are attacking us precisely at this weak point by appealing to the passions. And that works. It really works. And now, with all that firmly in mind, just take a look around at the society we live in and consider the life of sensual softness that's constantly being paraded before our senses. Comfort, pleasure, Sweetness, softness, sexuality, what's it all appealing to? It's all appealing to our concupiscence. We're constantly being bathed in appeals to our concupiscence, like no culture in the history of the world. Just think about the fact that for the most part, our advertising is specifically geared to appeal to our fallen nature. 
to appeal to our appetites and our passions. What does that mean? Think about that. What does it mean to say that our advertising is geared to specifically appear, appeal to our fallen nature, to appeal to our passions and our emotions, to appeal to our concupiscence? What does that mean? Since most of our advertising is set up to appeal specifically to a power which inclines us towards sin, it means it's set up to tempt us. Since most of our advertising is set up to appeal specifically to a power which inclines us towards sin, that means it's set up to tempt us. For the first time in history, in all of human history, temptations are being scientifically designed to appeal to the sensual desires. And this is in spite of the fact that's been known from the beginning. It's in ancient times, the pagans, the Jews, the constant teaching of all the fathers, doctors, and saints of the church, all of them, all of them, right across the board. It's the unanimous testimony of history and human experience that it's a constant battle for a man to conquer his passions and to bring them under the rule of right reason, to live a life of virtue, to live a life of virtue, to live a life of virtue, the passions simply have to be brought into submission. And that is impossible if they're constantly being excited. It's totally impossible. To live a virtuous life, the passions must be brought into submission, which is totally impossible if they're constantly being excited. Contrast the sensual life to the life of virtue. In order to live a virtuous life, we have it on the authority of God himself, that each one of us has to deny himself and take up his cross. We have to fight and struggle in order to bring our sensory appetites under the rule of reason. And it is a fight. It is a struggle, but it's simple to understand. Either we lead our passions, or passions are going to lead us. That's, it's that basic. Either we lead our passions, or the passions are going to lead us. And where are they going to lead us? They're going to lead us straight into hell. It's a fight. It's a struggle, but the symbol of our religion is not some big stupid purple dinosaur telling everybody just hold hands and we're all going to be happy and go to heaven, huh? That's the symbol of our religion. That's the symbol of our religion. It's the suffering, crucified Lord, bloody, mangled, nailed to the cross. That's our religion, not this sissified, feminized, Barney Catholicism that's being pitched almost from almost every pulpit in so many places. This is what St. Paul is talking about in that wonderful passage in Galatians 5.24. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the vices and the concupiscences. They that are Christ's have crucified their flesh with the vices and the concupiscences. Notice what St. Paul did not say in that passage. He did not say that those who belong to Christ have caressed their flesh with the finest and sensual pleasures. He did not say that those who belong to Christ have spoiled themselves with sweet, soft living. He said those that are Christ have crucified their flesh with the vices and the concupiscences. They've crucified their flesh. St. Paul knew what he was talking about. 
He's suffered from concupiscence just like the rest of us. That's what he's writing about in Romans 7.15 when he says, I do not understand what I do, for it is what I, not what I wish that I do, but what I hate that I do. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul talks about beating his own body, pummeling it into submission so he doesn't lose his salvation. That St. Paul mortifying himself so he doesn't lose his salvation. We're talking about St. Paul. St. Paul. We all have concupiscence, not her. We all have concupiscence, it's insubordination, it's unreasonable and rebellious desires for sensible goods, and it so often leads us into sin. And you don't need me to tell you that one of the most miserable, aggravating, irritating creatures on earth is a man who hasn't got his appetites under control. He's got the potential to be a great saint, but he's been spoiled. Maybe when he's a kid, by his parents' lack of resolve to get with the program and win the battle and line that kid out right from the beginning before these bad habits could take root. Or maybe he's been spoiled by his own lack of discipline and by caving into his own desire, by his own rebellious passions. So the man that might have really been a great saint with the right discipline turns out to be at best an aggravating knothead. He can't say no to himself. He winds up living his life at the natural level never battling his lower inclinations. And that means a life of sin, a life of degradation, probably an eternity in fire. God's holy word says, by nature we are born children of wrath. If we live at the level of nature, fallen nature, never striving towards holiness, we're deserving of the wrath of God. Thank you very much, Adam, but that's reality. Because of our condition then to live at the level of nature, to even deliberately or carelessly excite and inflame our passions is extremely dangerous for our spiritual well-being. Either we lead our passions or passions are going to lead us. And if in little things we're constantly caving into our desires, what will become of us when big things come hurtling down the path? It's not a pretty thought. We'll end up trapped in the sins which St. Paul described in Galatians 5 as the works of the flesh. Fornication, impurity, immodesty, debauchery, fights, drunkenness, and so on. That's the fruits of this culture that we find ourselves in. And if we don't fight them, if we don't resist, we'll end in hell. No ifs, ands, or buts. So we got two choices. Either our passions serve us, or we serve our passions. Either our passions serve us, or we serve our passions. It's a salvation issue to get reins on your passions. So here's reality. We're suffering from the effects of original sin. Thank you, Adam. Since we don't have the gift of integrity, one specific problem we all suffer from is concupiscence. Concupiscence, again, is the rebellion of our sense appetites, like our passions and emotions against right reason, and it inclines us towards sin. Because of this inherent inclination towards sin, unless we fight and struggle to bring those passions into submission, they'll lead us into sin. So generally speaking, we're already in a pickle. And as if that isn't serious enough, we're immersed in an environment which not only does not help soothe and restrain our passions, but instead our environment is positively oriented towards keeping the passions almost continually stimulated and inflamed. And our environment is negatively oriented in the sense we're almost continually encouraged to not deny ourselves, to not struggle, not to fight against our desires, to just spoil ourselves, indulge yourself. 
In other words, we find ourselves immersed in a culture which actually promotes almost unlimited temptation. Now we have the context. We're in trouble. We're in the middle of a minefield. The vast majority of our fellow citizens don't even have a clue of how we ought to be treated or even which way we ought to be headed. They don't have a clue. So ponder what we've talked about today and think about the social and indeed the political implications of what you've learned. We'll pick up there next week.